Welcome to the Arbitration Conversation with Amy Schmitz. So hello and welcome to the Arbitration Conversation. In today's Arbitration Conversation, now that we've moved to a podcast, um, we're excited. We will be on many venues and Spotify, iTunes, all the rest. Um, and today we're going to talk with John Lewis. John Lewis is a partner at Baker Hostetler. He concentrates his practice on resolution of complex employment, labor, and regulatory disputes, including the defense and oversight of class action litigation. He spends a great deal of time in alternative dispute resolution, including arbitration. He's an authority on arbitration and the Federal Arbitration Act. He has participated in more than 90 cases before federal and state appellate courts, including amicus briefs before the United States Supreme Court. So, John, thank you so much for taking time. You're a busy lawyer. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about a recent, very recent case um, before the United States Supreme Court having to do with waiver of your right to arbitration. So first of all, the, the case, um, Sundance, um, do you mind telling us a little bit about the backstory? What is the case? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of interesting case. And, uh, you know, the counsel for um, Sundance kept repeating this background. So I'll, I'll start with that. Morgan, the employee who worked for a Taco Bell uh, franchisee, was covered by an arbitration agreement, but instead she chose to file a putative nationwide collective action against Sundance, this Taco Bell uh, franchisee. She was a member of a crew that worked at the Taco Bell store in Osceola, Iowa. And um, one of the interesting things was that her allegation, and when I say putative, you know, collective action, I mean by that uh, an action that she sought to proceed on behalf of a number of other individuals who also worked for Taco Bell at various locations. So, uh, but it, they had not legally become parties to the action yet. But there was another one pending um, that was filed filed uh, two years earlier called Wood versus Sundance Inc. And that was already certified. In other words, it was a real collective action when um, Morgan filed her action. So instead of proceeding with arbitration, the attorneys for Sundance filed a motion to stay or dismiss. In other words, shut it down for a while based on the first to file rule. And that rule is the first party that files an action gets precedent and is entitled to proceed um, in a going forward way. So they were saying, well, Morgan's case was the second filed. So since the other one was certified and proceeding, that's the one that should cover it. Uh, ultimately, that motion four months later was denied by the Michigan District Court. Then since there was um, an, a, 
kind of a massive settlement proceeding going on in the Wood case, they um, enabled Morgan to join that, um, strike that, yeah, Morgan to join that and be with the Wood plaintiff. So they, they moved to see whether it could resolve it. Um, it didn't. And three weeks later, Sundance moved uh, under sections three and four of the Federal Arbitration Act for an order compelling arbitration. Morgan opposed that order, uh, arguing that Sundance waived its right to compel arbitration by participating in the lawsuit for months and delay. Um, and they based it on Sixth Circuit law. Um, the district court um, said no, that they weren't entitled to any kind of arbitral order uh, because they had um, participated for a lengthy period in arbitration. But when they appealed to the Eighth Circuit, it disagreed in a two uh, versus one decision, the court said, no, they didn't really act inconsistency. Yes, there was an eight month delay, but the party spent very little time actively litigating and no time on the merits of the case. So the Eighth Circuit said, nope, they can go forward. Right, well, I guess this really sort of tees it up for the US Supreme Court, considering we now have a very clear uh, circuit split. Well, it's right. In fact, there was a, at least, uh, well, more than one earlier cert petition. One had been granted and then the parties settled the case, so it was dismissed. So what it takes to uh, waive your right to arbitrate is something that was split among the circuits and really dying for Supreme Court intervention. Right, and it is important, right? Because you have to question, you know, what is enough in order for there to be waiver? And I think this also raises some very interesting issues about looking to state law to decide that question. Um, so when it got to the US Supreme Court, how did arguments go? Well, the arguments were, uh, were quite interesting. And I think, um, well, two things, I think, a number of the justices appeared to be concerned with uh, the Sundance's delay in pursuing arbitration. So I think that was one vibe you got, especially from the more um, progressive or liberal justices on the court. They seem to have some problems with Sundance trying a number of uh, alternatives to arbitration before jumping in and pursuing it. Um, on the other side, as we'll discuss in a little more detail, some of the judges felt that the, uh, the procedure um, promoted by um, plaintiffs was way too complex because Morgan was arguing that the parties should first pursue the claims in state court under state law. 
and only if there was no violation, no problem there, would they then proceed under Section 3 of the Federal Arbitration Act. So you could have two sets of arbitration strike that, two sets of litigation, two court visits before you could make a determination, is this right waived? Uh, is the matter going to go forward to arbitration? And I think the justices um, seem to have problems with that kind of dual approach. Right. Well, it seems as though um, Chief Justice Roberts weighed in um, quite a bit. Um, any thoughts on the questions he asked? Well, I think that, you know, I think they were probably interesting between Roberts, Breyer, Alito. Um, I think some of the more interesting, straightforward questions were asked. Roberts asked uh, Gilbride, and this is taken from the, the transcript of the oral argument, but what are the standards for waiver under state law are different with respect to arbitration and other provisions in the contract? Then that would violate the Federal Arbitration Act, right? And, um, you know, Ms. Gilbride, uh, counsel for petitioner, um, seemed to say, well, it's a different standard. Um, and then Justice Roberts proceeded further. Well, then don't you have to analyze per precisely why waiver is being applied in each case and see if it's the same? And he, he seemed to be very much concerned with the dual processes that would be involved in this. He, um, you know, they delaying an argument under state law could be viewed as waiver. So, the, you know, while the states have the right to, to perhaps wade in, that is going to extend the, uh, the time of the argument. Um, and, and Breyer was much concerned as well. Uh, he, he asked, I just wanna know what I should read. So I've written down here, latches, in default, forfeiture, waiver, estoppel, and there are probably six or seven others, which are primarily contract or not entirely, but, and state law questions. I know very little about them. And suddenly this court writing a treatise on that could get laws in many, many places really mixed up because judges sometimes put the wrong words that there are the wrong words. And so I, that to me again indicated a concern. And then, then Judge Alito more succinctly said, well, all the courts of appeals, as I understand it, have applied federal common law. And, and that's what we were essentially dealing with before this case and before the argument. You know, we've uh, written at least two articles on, on this waiver and they were all federal common law and the divisions between the, um, the federal courts of appeals and even many, many state courts looked to federal decisions and waiver 
and what constitutes waiver or default. They seem to focus on that. Um, right. So in, when Justice Alito asked that, um, Ms. Gilbride said yes. So most courts have looked at this under section three of the FAA because the parties are seeking stays under section three. And then Justice Alito rejoined, and you now want the case to be remanded and decided under, Ohio, under Iowa law, am I right? That's correct. We want the Eighth Circuit to have an opportunity to apply generally applicable Ohio con contract law. And then Alito was engaged at that point. He said, well, right. you have a strong argument. You might be right, but it would represent a sea change, would it not? Would it require all courts of appeals to approach this question differently from the way they have it, correct? And she seemed to say, yes, this is a different approach. And then um, Justice Roberts continued to hold on and to pursue the question. He says, I have one last question um, and he said, I would just suggest that one thing that your, posi your position will do is increase the complexity and delay associated with arbitration proceedings. And of course, that's toxic if that's true. Very toxic, course, yeah. <laughs> he says, and of course, the whole point of the Federal Arbitration Act, or at least a significant point, was to expedite disputes. Yet, you're, it seems to me, creating a whole new battleground before you even get to arbitration about whether or not there's been waiver under state law. And then she came back around and said, well, the Eighth Circuit applied an arbitration-specific waiver doctrine at odds, at odds with the generally applicable Iowa contract law, and that necessitates remand for the proper inquiry, which whether it's under state law or federal law, so now she seems to say it could be under both or either uh, should not involve a prejudice requirement. So there was skepticism. There was also some concern about the prejudice requirement where it came from, but the justices seem to have a concern about this federal and state role and whether that would simply increase the complexity and delay of the project. You know, it would. Right. I mean, you're going to have to be in state court and then potentially you could be back in federal court and then right. federal appellate court. So where does it, if you were to read the tea leaves, um, that's asking a lot, but uh, what do you think will be their ultimate determination? Because I do think this question of looking at each state's laws, I think back, I was actually a clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, and I'm thinking about what some of the judges would have thought of that. Um, and uh, that really sort of opens a whole new box, right? And so I wonder yeah. where the Supreme Court will go on that. Yeah, I was really surprised because we had spent a lot of time looking at the circuits, the various circuits, and trying to categorize the circuits. And, and going back even to the 1800s in our research and trying to understand how the, uh, how the terms um, came into being and what was required. And, and now 
um, something is something else totally different seems to be uh, debated in front of the court. I think the and it's it's always impossible to know as as you know um, from the oral arguments, but I think that there is skepticism whether or not first sending cases to the state courts is workable. Now, there may be concern with the definition of waiver, how one ascertains waiver, uh, delay, default, whatever the proper term the court wants to use for it would be determined. But I think if they feel that this particular um, party spent too much time litigating in court, they could simply determine the case narrowly that in this situation under Eighth Circuit law, it, there should have been a determination that this was a default or waiver and perhaps talk about some of the things that should be considered, but not uh, put a stamp for approval on going to state court first for each case. And I'm a little surprised that um, counsel for Morgan chose to pursue it in that way, because I think uh, with the Seventh Circuit and the DC Circuit, there are a number of federal circuits and very, very uh, intellectual judges that she could have uh, linked with and argue that this simply is not, you know, a demonstration of waiver is not simply it. Now, counsel for Sundance also made, uh, I think, compelling arguments that just seeking arbitration immediately may not be the best test either, that perhaps there should be more than if you don't seek it in the very first pleading that you've waived it. And I think right. that there could be some middle ground between the position that you can be in, uh, in litigation for months and months and that's not waiver with the, the position that if you don't seek it immediately in a motion or raise it in your answer, you've waived it. There, I think there is some legitimate middle ground that would in fact promote the objectives of the Federal Arbitration Act and other arbitration uh, provisions as well. Well, in middle ground seems to be really what in practice, if you look at all the opinions over time, have really more pursued somewhat of a middle ground um, on waiver. Well, and there's, um, I think there are some other issues that also need response. One that we have seen uh, in Ohio, but in a number of different jurisdictions is if you're in a putative class situation, and let's say that the named party um, isn't covered by an arbitration agreement. Can there be waiver in that situation? The Ohio Supreme Court waded into that in 2019 in a case called Gambarski versus Partsource. 
and said, you know, if there's no jurisdiction over the named parties, you can't waive it if you don't take action with respect to unnamed putative class um, members. So I think that's one area that, uh, and there's some, you know, appellate tribunals in addition who've reached similar uh, conclusions and, and frankly district courts. But that's one area I think with the advent of a lot of class collective action wage and hour, you need to know when do you have to raise it, even though legally the court does not have jurisdiction, certainly under Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Procedure, there's no jurisdiction over uh, putative class members, especially unnamed ones. And because they may have an arbitration agreement, it shouldn't signal waiver. The other issue that's not addressed in this case, but is arising, is can the right to arbitrate be uh, rejuvenated or a finding of no waiver? One of the more interesting cases is Forby versus One Technologies 2, where the Fifth Circuit, because there was an amended complaint that raised new issues, new issues of law under different laws, they said that gave rise to the ability of the defendants to seek arbitration. There wasn't, waiver didn't stop that. So sometimes um, the courts right. talk in terms of revival. Sometimes right. they say there's no waiver. Both right. of those areas need more substantive law. I think more um, clear-headed review so that people in the litigation trenches can make a determination. You know, I've got a putative class. And, and, and by the way, in the class situation, there are some pundits, there are some scholars, there are some plaintiff's counsel that say, just so you don't waste time, you should notify the court immediately, even if none of the parties are subject to court jurisdiction. Now, there are a lot of contrary arguments to that, um, but there clearly are differences of opinion in the class collective action area. Excellent point, such an important question. And, and it brings us to really sort of kind of looking into why this matters and why the case matters. Um, it seems to me that absolutely giving signal, giving information to uh, litigators to understand um, giving direction would be helpful. I wondered your thoughts on kind of the importance of this case. Well, I depending on how they unravel the issues, um, I think either it's going to be a significant case if they do it in a narrow fashion, as we've talked about, uh, to a case of overwhelming importance if they choose to look uh, to standards perhaps based on state law or to ignore the substantial amount of um, judicial opinions, particularly opinions in the federal circuits. If they decide that hasn't been productive, it's federal common law, it was created 
but it doesn't have a substantive basis. I disagree with that, but if that's the final determination, yeah, it, it could have uh, incredible potential for arbitration and um, cause, I think, cause litigants to immediately raise arbitration or decide I'm going to forego it because I'd rather be uh, in this court, whether it's a state court or federal court, and have my case resolved that way. And I think if there are some reoccurring state issues, strike that, reoccurring legal issues, both state and federal, some litigants might say, I'd rather be in court because I've got an appeal. Um, and I, the best I might get in arbitration based on the current law may be uh, going to district court and have the district court review the award if I fall within one of the, in one of the standards for that. Um, right. Well, and also, you know, there's this, um, it, yeah, definitely the kind of this gamesmanship or strategic considerations that would come into play most certainly. Oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you so much, John, for taking time with us and discussing this very important case um, and really doing a wonderful job of laying out the issues, the arguments, and, uh, and the importance for litigators um, from time to come. So, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking this time. Well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Fascinating issues, and uh, we will at least get a partial resolution. Yeah, <laughs> stay tuned. Stay tuned. This podcast was brought to you by Arbitrate.com. For more information about Arbitrate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.arbitrate.com. Thank you.